Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the precious truth in this chapter, in these verses. Please help us to see now what this means for us today as we trust in Jesus and seek to live for him and follow him. Amen. Well, how secure do you feel this morning? Inflation is at its highest for 40 years. Fuel prices through the roof, war in Europe still recovering from the craziness of the last two years. Where do we look for security in times like this? Many look to wealth and then watch the value of their money struggle against the rising cost of living. Maybe we look to happiness and and meaning and and purpose. And we look around and realise mental health referrals are through the roof. Maybe we look to health and fitness, knowing... Well, the next virus will hit us at some point, eventually, and and the last one actually is very much still with us, even this morning. Uh, Maybe we look to academic success. There's always somebody somewhere doing much better. For many of us in competitive North London, a, a lot of our sense of security comes down to ourselves and our own sense of Um, performance and how we are doing, what we can do. If you work hard, you'll have enough money to weather the storms of life and this season of inflation and pay your rent, pay your mortgage, support your family. If you work hard, you'll pass your exams, keep the job that gives you kudos and status and a sense of worth. If you work hard, you'll keep your body in physical peak physical condition if you work hard you'll be happy and yet so often happiness just feels slightly out of reach at the top of the next hill round the next corner next week next month next year and on we go what is the common denominator well you've got to work hard it comes down to you and security and happiness just seem elusive as we press on regardless what about when it comes to god then Well, it turns out that this assumption that it all comes down to me and my performance is so ingrained in us that we cannot help applying this to the way that we think about God and what he wants of us. In in, in this letter to the Romans that we've been studying over these months, one of the big messages is that we're brought into relationship with God, not on the basis of our performance, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of Jesus' performance, on the basis of what he has done. It's a free gift. It depends entirely on him. But so ingrained in us is this idea of performance that we immediately say, can this really be right? Doesn't this mean I can do what I like? I can sin and get away with it because Jesus has already paid the price. That was the question, in effect, in chapter 6, verse 1. And since then... Paul has been showing in various ways, no, you have a new life, you have a new identity, a new master. It makes absolutely no sense to go back to the old one. And yet, as we saw last week, sin remains a reality in our lives here and now. We're like that derelict house. It's been brought under new ownership, but we're still dealing with the after effects of the way the old owner treated the property. So how does this all come together? The idea that we receive what Jesus has done as a free gift on the one hand. The idea that sin is no longer appropriate and yet remains a reality in our lives. What is life meant to feel like now? Does it all in the end, after all, come down to our performance, to what we 
do? Is it down to me to deal with my sin, live a good life now that I've been forgiven? How secure should I feel about the whole thing? Romans chapter 8 is a purple passage, as they call it in, in the Bible. It's a high point in the Bible where Paul brings together the good news about Jesus and applies it to the ups and downs of real life as a Christian. And that's why we're looking at it slowly over these weeks, so we can really grasp the details of what he's saying and squeeze out every ounce of encouragement and good news that Paul has for us here. So there's just two things to see this morning. You can see on the back of the notice sheet, the verses split in half. So you get verses 1 and 2, and then he, he says the same thing again, but in more detail in verses 3 and 4. So kind of 1 and 3 match, and 2 and 4 match if we look. So we're going to see them together in pairs like that. So we can see, first of all, in Christ there is now no condemnation. I left the word now off on the handout. You can stick that back in. It's really important. Now, no condemnation. This is Paul's triumphant summary of all that he's said so far in this letter. Therefore, he says, in the light of all we've seen, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We should, of course, we should be condemned for our sin, past, present and future. This is what it deserves. Do you know the story of Arthur Conan Doyle? One day he was having a day off from writing Sherlock Holmes stories. He sent a telegram to 12 friends in prominent positions in government and society in London at the time. The telegram said simply, flee at once, all is revealed. And within 24 hours, six of them had left the country. That is guilt, isn't it? So many of us carry that around with us, guilt and shame. In my small group this week, we were talking through the reality of what last week's passage, Romans chapter 7, feels like in our lives. And that, that, that sense that after you come to faith in Jesus, if that is something that happens later than in early childhood, so you can remember a time before you came to faith, which not everyone can, but if you can... After you come to faith in Jesus, what happens is actually you become more aware of sin and guilt. Not less aware. Your conscience is more pricked than it ever was before. And that leads to the kind of inner conflict that we saw last time. But Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this challenges what we so often assume to be true about life, that it must, it must somehow still come down to our performance, really. No, it comes down to what Jesus has done. Can you see that? In, in, in verse 3, as we said, he elaborates on it. What the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. See, we instinctively say, no, it must have something to do with law-keeping. It must have something to do with us. It must have something to do with our own performance, really. Recently, I heard a head teacher of a school uh, talking about the values of that school, and, and one of the values is hope, Christian hope. I thought, oh, this is great. Let's see what they have to say. So I was listening hard, and he said, hope isn't just hoping that the bus will come. 
I said, yeah, fantastic, that's absolutely right. He said, it's the knowledge of a bright future. Yeah, oh man, that's fantastic. And he said, it's a bright future based on sacrifice. Yes, that's absolutely right. It's Jesus. I mean, you could say Jesus' sacrifice, but it's based on Jesus' sacrifice. Brilliant. And then he said, but it has to be earned. It doesn't come for free. No, that's not Christian hope. Not Christian hope at all. That's saying, you see, it comes down to our performance. It comes down to our ability to keep God's law. Now, in, in a school context... You can understand why a head teacher would be very keen to find a way to kind of stick in that actually working hard is quite a good idea. And it does really matter. Because that's the kind of thing that teachers want to say all the time. Ask David afterwards, he'll confirm that. But that is not the Christian gospel, is it? And actually, it doesn't give us security. What it does is it gives us anxiety particularly when it comes to our relationship with God. If it all comes down to us and what we have to do, it gives us no security at all. But Paul is saying there is now no condemnation because Jesus has done what you are powerless to do by taking the penalty you deserve for your sin on his own shoulders. God condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus' flesh. That is where the condemnation has happened. The flesh he's taken on to be in our likeness as he tells us earlier in the verse. We heard in the first reading this kind of idea of a sin offering unpacked in Leviticus. The idea that you can't just waltz into the presence of God. But even in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, they had this sense that there was one who could be a sin offering on whom the sins of the people could be confessed. And then, on the basis of that, the priest could enter the holy place. And Jesus has fulfilled all that. And he has died for us. You see, it's as if we owe a massive debt that we cannot pay, no matter how hard we work. But Jesus has paid it for us. It's as if we're sentenced to life in prison for a crime that we're definitely guilty of, no doubt. And no amount of good behaviour in prison will get us out. But Jesus goes to prison in our place. And so Paul can say... Now, not next year, not in five or ten years when you finally got it together. Right now, whoever you are, whatever you've done, if you're trusting Jesus, you belong to him, there is now no condemnation. Don't we need this in a world that feels so insecure now? more than ever, in a world where we're so quick to condemn and slow to forgive, where you can be cancelled with no hope of redemption, where simply to be privileged is to be guilty, and then to deny that is irredeemably guilty further still. The, the, the world of identity politics brings these issues to the fore. Two years ago, an academic and activist in the US, Jessica Krug, admitted publicly that she had falsely built her career and fame by claiming to be black when she had no right to do so. And this was discovered by others. 
And before she could be outed, she wrote a confession. She said this. She said, my false identity was crafted entirely from the fabric of black lives. You should absolutely cancel me. And I absolutely cancel myself. The wrath of all whom I've harmed individually and collectively will never erase the harm that I've done. I can't fix this. I would never ask for nor expect forgiveness. There is nowhere to run. I have ended the life I had no right to live in the first place. She resigned from her post. She's not been heard from since. Now, clearly, it is not right to claim a different racial or ethnic identity or to seek to profit from that in, in some way. But it is striking that having admitted that what she did was wrong, she cannot imagine the possibility of forgiveness and she agrees with her critics that she has committed a completely unforgivable sin. See, this is the kind of world that we live in, but it is not so with God. See, sin will have consequences with others, of course. We might need to say sorry. We might not be able to stay in positions of authority or influence if we've abused the, truth, the, the, the trust of others. It may well be it, it's right that somebody in, in, in the position of that lecturer stands down from the role that she had, of course. But in Christ, there is no condemnation because of what Jesus has done. Do we dare to believe that? And, and live that in the way that we relate to one another. One of Paul's aims in writing this letter was in order to see the Roman church unite around Jesus. And step one in uniting is realizing that we're not condemned by God and then to model that love that God has shown us in our relationships with others. unconditional love of the kind that we're seeing here is, is very precious, isn't it? <clears throat> it's, uh, it's Father's Day today. Um, when I was growing up, like uh, many, I was very driven by performance, particularly academic performance. And my parents were very encouraging and would tell me, you know, well done and so on when I did well. But because I largely did fairly well, in one sense, I couldn't quite say if that love was conditional on me performing well until in my second year in university, I was kind of distracted by student activities, as one get, is, and I dropped a grade lower in my final exams of that year. And inwardly, I was disappointed, but my parents didn't even blink in their response of congratulations. Now, not everyone gets to experience that kind of thing all the time from everyone. But that's the kind of thing that we're talking about, isn't it? Anyone who trusts in Jesus will experience that unconditional love and acceptance from God our Father. And know that in that verdict, there is now, today, for sins past, present, and future. Even the ones we think, oh, nobody knows about this. Even the ones where we think, I'm so ashamed of that. God says no condemnation now, today. But then alongside that wonderful proclamation 
comes a second perspective on the, the Christian life. No condemnation because of what Jesus has done as a summary of the past, but what about now? What should I expect now in my life, particularly with the rubbish left over from my old life that we thought about last time? Well, here's the second thing. In Christ, there is new life according to the Spirit. So here's the thing. Sometimes when we describe what Jesus has done, we can make it sound as if he's got us back to the start line, merely. <clears throat> you know, we, we feel like the Christian life is a race. And actually, it's not the Olympics, with everyone in kind of peak physical condition, focused on the goal, running the race of our lives. You know, and however, you know, one person's going to win, but everybody is absolutely going for it and performing to the best of their ability. It's not really like that. It's more, we think, like what you see if you go to sports day at preschool. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to do this. Uh, but they kind of line them all up at the start line and they blow the whistle. And what happens then? Well, they, what happens is they all set off in random directions. And some go forwards and immediately fall over. They knock into each other. And some go backwards, totally the wrong direction. It's utterly chaotic. And you see the teachers and the parents, and they, they pick them up, and they attempt to kind of put them back at the start so they can sort of have another go and see if they can get to the end, and run the race properly. And that maybe is an apt analogy for the chaos of life lived in rebellion against God. But what we imagine then is that kind of forgiveness and saying there's no condemnation simply involves being returned to the start line so we can have another go. You know, you were lost, you were heading the wrong way, you got bashed and bruised in the process. Now Jesus has come, you've been put right. Get up and try again. Off you go, live the Christian life, run the race, see if you can get to the finish line more successfully this time. And here Paul is saying, what we have in Christ is not just a return to the start line with no condemnation and a kind of fresh start for what we've done. Because it's also in Christ, we have Christ in us by his spirit to take us to the finish line too. See, the law of the spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death, he says. So this is talking about how the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart so that we want to obey God's commands. The law is no longer the law on the wall, as someone's put it, but it's the law in the heart. And verse 4, he says, All that Jesus has done is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met. But where? Where, has the, where, where does he say the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met? At that point, if we switched on our theology brains, uh, we might expect Paul to say, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in Christ. That would make sense, because he took the law perfectly, he took its penalty, he kept the law rather, he took its penalty, and, and that's absolutely something the Bible says elsewhere. But here, what does he say? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Now, elsewhere, Paul sums up the righteous requirement of the law as being to love as we have been loved. 
That is the one, that's how you sum up. What's the one thing God asks of his people to love? Love, your, love God, love your neighbour. The one thing we fail to do, in fact, is to love. But now, he says, because of what Jesus has done, that can be fulfilled in us. How? Because we walk not according to the flesh, the old way of life in Adam, chapter 5, but according to the Spirit who lives in us and writes the law in our hearts so that we want to obey God from within. Now, Romans 8 is a bit like playing pass the parcel. You know, you, you unwrap one layer and then you find there's another layer to unwrap underneath. And you keep going, you keep unwrapping more layers, another gift each time within. And we're going to get on exactly to what it means to live according to the Spirit we're going to see next time in <clears throat> verses 5 to 11, as Paul unpacks it. But for now, we need to get this headline. See, we're not just put back on the start line, told to get on with it. If you think of the house under new ownership, we're not just given a shovel and a bin bag and told to kind of get on with the job of tidying up. We're given the Holy Spirit who works in us to make us more like Jesus as we trust him, who works in us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, as we will see later in the chapter. But one thing to notice is that this is entirely the opposite of what we expect. You see, we think, we think, if we tell people that their sins are forgiven and there's no condemnation, they're just going to do what they like. And that, that is what that head teacher couldn't quite grasp, if you think about it. You know, surely it can't be true that we're given Christian hope as a free gift that we do not have to earn in any way, because that just means you can do anything. And actually, Paul's here, as Paul's, Paul imagines his audience responding in that way at the beginning of chapter 6. It's a real objection. We, we, we really don't get this. But now, by the beginning of chapter 8... He's turned it all around. You see, we think you don't really need to hear about grace. What you need to hear about is the rules. And that's going to keep you on the straight and narrow. Make sure you stick to the rules. And Paul has spent two chapters proving, no, law and rules aren't going to help you. Remember, the law is like the mirror. The law is not going to change your heart. All the law does is remind you of your sin and your inability to keep the law. Because the real problem is inside you. The real problem is your own sinful heart and your flesh. And now Paul shows, actually, not only is this gospel the only way that your sin can be dealt with, it's also the only thing that will produce real obedience from the heart as we live by the Spirit and the righteous requirements of the law is met. Do you see, he's actually completely turned the original objection on its head. People think, oh no, the gospel of grace, that's going to... People aren't going to obey if they hear about grace. Don't tell them that. Paul says, no, you must tell them that if you want them to change their lives and obey. That is what will change us. It is that gospel of grace. Only that gospel of grace can produce real obedience in us as the Spirit works in us. So what does that mean for us then? It means the solution to the reality of ongoing sin in our lives isn't more law and rules as we struggle here and now as christians with those besetting sins that we feel ashamed of and we know hurt god and hurt others our lack of self-control our temper our greed or malice our envy 
our lust, our inability to do anything other than put ourselves and our own interests first, what do we need? Is it simply to be told, you really need to try harder? You're not taking this seriously enough. You need to stop doing that. You know, Jesus died for you. Don't disappoint him. Work harder. You know, yes, I, I know you say you've tried to be better, but you haven't really, really tried to be better, have you? You know, and this is the way we kind of preach to ourselves, as it were. But no, says Paul, what you need is the good news that there is now no condemnation. You are free. God does not see that besetting sin. He sees that Jesus has paid the punishment already. And then you need the Holy Spirit living in you, who will cause you to live according to the Spirit. And what that means then is that the chief thing Christians need to be doing is not fixating on the latest technique to deal with their sin or kind of building motivation so I can really try harder to be holy and be good. What we need is to fixate on Jesus. You see, the more we see and know of him, the less we'll be able to help ourselves from obeying him and living for him. That is the dynamic. That is what he promises. Oh, but surely you have to do something. You can't just say you trust Jesus. No, that, that objection, which is very common and understandable, is exactly what Paul has been addressing. And it is missing the point, because the more we see of Jesus, the more we understand just how his death has paid the price, even for the sin I'm most aware of and most ashamed of, the more we realize the privilege of being in Christ and no longer in Adam, the privilege of a new life led by the Spirit, the privilege of total security in an insecure world, the more we will change and be changed. No amount of inflation or war or job worries or health crises can affect our standing with the God who made us and the God who loves us unconditionally in Christ so stick with him that's what Paul is saying to us walk according to the spirit and the possibilities then are endless let's pause now and I'll lead us in prayer Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We come to you, Heavenly Father, we take our stand on that verse, that truth. <coughs> we may be deeply conscious of ways we've <coughs> fallen short and turned our backs on you. We thank you that before you we have nothing to fear when we trust in Jesus. 
would you then give us your Holy Spirit in order to enable us to live according to the Spirit. Thank you for that gift. Thank you that you have given him to us. And so day by day, may we see more of Jesus and might we then walk more and more according to the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.